Real Fun DC. Hospitality and a little bit of sass are always on the menu. Industry Night with Nikki Nellis. Hi all and welcome to another Industry Night with me, Nikki Nellis. So I did take a bit of a break last week. I am allowed to miss a show every now and again uh, to do some food and travel adventures uh, in other cities. So I did take the train up to Philly last week. Um, I needed to check out the new Irwin's Upstairs. It's in the Bach building. It is a really fabulous little Sicilian restaurant doing very interesting things. The Bach building is a, a school from like the 30s and it's massive and while they reimagined it they did not renovate it so it was a really interesting experience and i think my guests who are on the show later will appreciate that while this restaurant was sicilian the wine list was not which was really disappointing to me anyway i went up the train to new york city uh, i checked out uh cicely strong who is in the search for signs of intelligent life at the fabulous shed theater uh checked out the brooklyn darling olmstead which deserves all its adoration and the real highlight was the dior exhibit at the brooklyn museum of art and if you haven't had an opportunity to see it run your little tushes there because it is absolutely brilliant um so not a bad 48 hours i mean i'm really good at getting it all in there, and I did. So to keep up with all my travels and all my eating, because I eat and drink a lot, follow me at N-Y-C-C-I-N-E-L-L-I-S on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Of course, you can also see everything on the website, the list, areyouwanted.com, uh, the online museum that tells you everything that's happening. Okay, so let's get on with today's show. So a few weeks back on my other show, Foodie and the Beast, on every Sunday at 11 a.m. on 1500. Um, I chatted with Katarina Axelson, the 30-year-old founder of and CEO of Tastry. So Tastry is this California sensory science company that predicts how consumers will perceive any product that you can taste or smell. And I was like, what? So um, we had this really fascinating conversation, but for those of you who know, um, Foodie and the Beast is a variety show, so we only had 10 minutes, and there was a lot more to discuss. So I called Katarina and said, how about you join me on Industry Night? We take a deep dive on you and what Tastry does, and then we can chat about some of the people you work with. So done and done. So joining me today is Katarina, and with her is Hilary Klein, some, uh, sommelier and wine steward at Bond's Grocery, and Alex Remy, who is the managing partner and winemaker at um, Atlas Wine Co. So I'm so excited to dig in. So Katarina, let's start with you. Um, you're a chemist, you're a software developer, you've got a lot going on. So a little background, please. Yeah, hi, Nikki. Thanks so much for having me back. Um, yeah, so I, I went to Cal Poly University on the central coast of California, and we're buried in a very, um, you know, you could say prolific uh, wine industry. So I paid my way through college by working as a, a chemist, among other things, in the wine industry. And, uh, you know, one thing led to another. I was given a lot of freedom, freedom to uh, act like a mad scientist off work hours in the lab. And I took full advantage of that and had come, had run multiple experiments and uh, Tastry was one of those. 
And then I just, uh, you know, I started to take that research, collaborate with AI experts, sensory experts, winemakers, sommeliers, and uh, Tastry was born. And since then, we've just kind of taken and, and ran with it. But I, for the layperson, what does that mean? I mean, what kind of data were you collecting that you were able to compile and yeah. then create this Tastry with? Yeah, so, so the first thing I noticed was is that the chemistry methods to look at products like wine, not limited to wine, by the way, it could be coffee, orange juice, whatever it may be. It was for quality control purposes, which means you're just trying to identify is the product of a good enough, you know, quality to bottle or whatnot. Um, but it wasn't really looking at what consumers would actually perceive based on that chemistry. Um, so the method that took you know, over two years to develop was designed to um, have the machine taste the wine the same way a human palate would, instead of just identifying compounds. Okay, so can you like walk me through what that is? I mean, I have a, I have like a movie vision in my head of like somebody pouring wine into like a computer and it like sifting it and doing something with it. Like, how does it, how does it happen? Yeah. Um, and I apologize if I get a little too technical no, here no, and start nerding out. I'm asking the questions because I am, I am keenly interested. Yeah. Um, so uh, I'll just use a GCMS as an example. It's called a gas chromatogram. And what it does is it separates everything in a solution into pieces that are, you know, compounds that are broken down. You can identify what is present or absent in a wine. Um, I'll give you a popular example, benzaldehyde equals cherry flavor. Very often, um, if you find benzaldehyde in something, you could attribute a cherry flavor to it. Hmm. The problem is, is um, when you're quantifying that compound, um, there's hundreds of other compounds in this chemical soup all mixed together. And depending on the concentration and ratios of those compounds, it could mask that cherry flavor, or it could express it. So looking at one thing at a time isn't really helpful. You have to look at how is everything interacting with each other? Because, you know, when you're drinking a wine as a consumer, um, you're experiencing everything, all that chemistry at once, whereas a, a machine typically wouldn't. Um, well, so, but let me ask you a question, because that's under the assumption that all of our taste buds are identical, right? So how... How do you take that into consideration? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Um, what I noticed, uh, it, it was like the, you know, billion dollar companies out there that were trying to figure out, you know, kind of break the code as to how to predict what something would taste like. Um, it, their, their efforts weren't sufficient. And so what we decided to do was short circuit that um, entire process because we learned that, um, identifying the flavor or taste of something has a quite a little small relationship to whether or not you actually like the product. Sure. So when we gathered all this data, we were focused on predicting if you would like something, not if you taste cherry with a hint of oak or if it tastes roasty or whatnot. Mm -hmm. That makes a lot of sense. So now, okay, so you collect this data and you've put taste together and what how did you initially plan on getting it used? What, how did you see people uh, act, activating with it or being a part of it? Yeah, yeah, it was actually it was actually quite a journey. Before we ever started working with, um, you know, winemakers, uh, 
or you know distributors even uh we started in retail and we just launched with a wine recommender engine using this data so we so for uh, the consumer would it be more for me at that point was it more for me yeah so because we were a small company we decided that we would work directly with first starting with grocery retailers then we moved into uh, e-com and um, they would use tastry to interface with their customers so they would provide them a wine recommender um, and it was kind of deceptively whimsical like you would go into the wine aisle there'd be an ipad or a qr code and you would answer 10 questions about how you like black coffee, licorice, dark chocolate. And in about 20 seconds, it would then tell you, okay, this wine on the shelf is the best match for your palate. And, you know, 80% match to your friend's palate, things like that. Right. That makes sense. And then, so then after the consumer was interfacing with it, did you realize that there was something else that you could do? Yeah, as we kind of deployed in more and more major cities, um, we started to capture a lot of palette data because as soon as we provide you a recommendation, we can start to see, um, you know, not only how you're matching to the wines available in your area, but um, we could see other people's palettes and we can aggregate that. So we started to see like trends and shifts um, and how, you know, like how um, people in Boston are a bit different from people in New York or South Beach, Florida. So we had um, over time developed this like heat map, like imagine like the Verizon coverage map, but instead of, you know, cell phone coverage, we're looking at how uh, people's preferences are drifting by location or zip code or whatnot. And I'm sort of um, curious about that. Do you think a lot of that has to do with how they're marketed to? I mean, if a region, like for example, DC is yeah. one of the largest consumers of rosé in the country. Um, and I partake in that, so I, I can validate that it's true. Um, but uh, I mean, we beat out Miami annually, but I also know that there was massive marketing done here on Rosé to educate the consumer. And now the consumer is following suit, it's drinking. So is that part, does any of that play into it or you're just about the taste? Um, so marketing is a huge component, you know, influencers are a huge component and then how the companies want to lean into markets is a huge component. Um, I can't say we have the answers to all those questions, but I can say we can to an extent predict um, what could work in a given market. Um, there's just so many variables and we are very focused on taste. And so like the idea is, is, um, we just want to mitigate the risk of consumers buying a wine that they're not going to like. And we want to increase their chances of getting something that they're going to love the first time. Um, and I think it served that purpose. But yes, there's a lot more we can do and there's a lot more to come. I have no doubt. All right. Well, so let's put a pin in you for a moment. And we're going to talk to um, Alex and Hillary about who they are, what they do, and how they work in the wine biz. And then eventually we'll all come back together and uh, figure out how you all work Good. together. So um, Alex, Remy, I'd love to start with you. Um, thank you for joining me today, Atlas Wine Co. Uh, how about a little bit about you and your wine history? Hi, uh, good morning. Oh, good afternoon, I guess. In yeah, well, it's good morning for you, okay? It's just good afternoon for us. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, so I'm Alex Remy. I'm the um, founder and winemaker for Atlas Wine Company. Um, I made wine in almost eight different countries. I studied food science, so 
that definitely will be a link with Katerina about um, more, more scientific approach to wine. Um, but basically, I started from washing tanks, so in the cellar, all the way up to learning the all the skills that a winemaker will need. Um, I then consulted for many wineries in the West Coast, uh, all the way from Washington down to uh, Paso Robles yeah. for about um, companies like Gallo, Constellation, Canon Jackson, learn a lot. And I found like with my experience in France that um, I was capable of perhaps starting a wine brand that could be very customer friendly on the principle of being without any additives uh, and based on very good wines that uh, people could enjoy at a fair price. Uh, because as of now, most, most wines at a certain price is dominated by the big groups just because of the cost of grapes, the cost of crush, everything. So I wanted to disrupt that and uh, launch Atlas Franco with two brands, Omen and Robelo Wines. And that was about eight years ago. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so innovation, science, uh, education to the consumers, read, uh, telling people the story behind the wine uh, and see what they're drinking, why is it drinking it is, uh, is sort of our, our goal. Mm -hmm. uh, while being yeah fully transparent um so yeah that's that's sort of my journey here uh we you know i love every day what i'm doing it's uh, either out in the vineyard or in the winery and talking to consumers and sharing a good glass of wine so it's it's fun it sounds terrible it sounds like an absolutely terrible way to live um right. i'm sort of curious about the wines of Atlas Blanco. I know you're in Napa Valley. Um, I actually do a lot of work with the Napa Valley Vintner Association. Um, okay. But um, I'd love to know about your wines, the kind of wines you're putting together right now. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, all, it's all really like, there's two approach of making wine. Like the first yeah. one is you get amazing vineyards uh, and you are a craftsman and you from the vineyards all the way to the bar, you follow everything and provide to the consumer your piece of work, right? So most, most wineries start that way. The <laughs> thing that I found is that most of my friends are in Napa Valley, Sonoma, everywhere in California, the quality of those wines are outstanding. Mm -hmm. The challenge is perhaps the price point of those wines could be a little high, let's say above $30 retail. And in order to get under $20 retail, which is 93% of the wine sold in the US, uh, either we can certainly talk about that, but at the average consumers buy under $20. And if you want to provide that kind of product, you cannot necessarily get the grapes from places like Napa and Sonoma because they are already uh, a little bit too expensive. So my idea is that instead of starting from the vineyard that I have on hand, I decided to say, hey, let's look at the consumer and what they really want. And let's say they want a Cabernet Sauvignon that is affordable, juicy, fruity, with a little bit of oak, but they don't want to pay $60 from Napa Valley. They want an alternative to that. And so I decided, where do I source the grapes in order to make sure that I can make that product available? So Paso Robles, for example, is a great way to provide excellent value-driven Cabernet Sauvignon. So I decided to take it from Paso and really make it to the consumer profile uh, by identifying what they like on a Cabernet Sauvignon. And you know it's 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 an equivalent to Napa Valley, but a fair price and perhaps with a little less tannins, a little 
less oak, but it has the same sort of components. So my, my take on the wine business was I can provide a customer-friendly product at a price that could work to introduce them to good quality wine and mm -hmm. without using any additives like adding sugar or anything that will be perhaps a little misleading to the craft of wine, which is like gum arabic and there's a, about 50 different additives and I don't want to go in it but you know sometimes wines that are on the cheaper side could be a bit of a mixed well, spot of right. sometimes cheaper wines are cheap because it's all additives I mean yeah. there's sugar there's stuff like that in there so I I do understand that I don't know how much I don't know how much people like the lay person like people who spend money on wines spend money on wines right yeah. like they know how it works and you know I'm sure out where you live and I know where I live, I mean, it's a pretty educated consumer uh, yes. when they go to the wine store. But I, I have no doubt that you're hundred percent correct that most people do not want to spend more than $20 when they go to buy like just an average bottle of wine just to have in the house to have a bottle of wine, right? Yes. So like finding that sweet spot is really important. But as a winemaker, you are a scientist. So how are you sort of mad sciencing that the wines that you're creating? Well, so the, the, the science, like anything, is to, to define a goal. And as long as you have a goal and you can backtrack your steps and make sure that you adapt the right quality control, like it could be a, a lab analysis from uh, testing the grapes for ripeness uh, or the time of aging, the, um, you know, making sure that all your steps through winemaking are, are well defined. I think the scientific approach of winemaking is really to set up a goal on backtracking and making sure you have all those quality control steps that matches your final goal, rather than fixing the problem as you go um, and by using additives or extra sulfites or anything like that. So my approach to wine is very scientific by the fact that I'm just I'm defining where I want to go and mm -hmm. put in place the right tools or analysis that is necessary to achieve that goal. Um, and I think that's a scientific approach because you analyze where you want to be at. And, right. um, uh, but, you know, in a way, I do not use any chemical additives, which a scientist or a food science would be willing to do, right? Mm -hmm. uh, it's a scientific approach, but more on the, uh, on, the, on the method rather than the use of extra additives. Right. And so when it comes to like what Katarina is doing with Tastry, given that you like the science of it, but what was it about what she was doing where you're like, oh, I can totally apply this to my products? Well, what, what Tastry is amazing in doing is that they provide me more information. So uh, you imagine you a mountaineering, right? And you want to summit, I don't know, uh, a mountain and you arrive and you don't have a map, you don't have a GPS, you don't know what time it is of the day right. and you may be caught by the, you know, dark or ice or wet, bad weather, right? So Tastry is really bringing me like a ton of information that just make sure that I, can, I confirm where I want to go. And on top of that, if I have any uh, shadow or blind spots, then it provides me more uh, clarity. So it's like, it's very interesting to me to add more information to my process because it secures my final goal. Uh, you know, it's not, nothing could be repla uh, replaced completely if you have more information and more data, you, you're capable of making safer and, and better decisions. And that's where, um, you know, we, with Atlas, we love innovation because we say, 
I can always be better, right? And and information is part of that process. Well, I think what's interesting is, is I'm sure a lot of people, you know, romanticize being a winemaker and living in Napa and walking around the vines and having wine um, because it sounds really fabulous. But the fact that you're so data-driven, I don't think a lot of people realize because it is a business. I mean, it has a beautiful side, but the end goal is to keep the business afloat and bring in income. So it's, it's fascinating to me how you're using the data as a way to uh, create better wines. Yeah, I mean, it's like the fantasy of the winemaker being on the vineyard is you have to ask yourself, what what are you doing there? Are you tasting grapes? But what are you tasting for which reason? And obviously the people that are working with the same vineyards every year, they can find by the concept of of looking back what's been working, you know, adjusting a little bit of, of all those parameters by your own, you know, data set in your brain. But mm-hmm. in a way, uh, when you start making enough wine, let's say thousands of cases, uh, and you have, I don't know, 100 vineyards to visit, uh, can you rely only on your memory? Right, no, <laughs> you need it. It's at one point, you're gonna have to use a set of data that's streamline or uh, at least filter a little bit of what you, you, your time on, make sure your decision is, is pertinent to the final product. No, I think that makes all the sense in the world. And it's, it, it's just sort of the evolution of the business, right? All right, we're going to come back to you. And now we're going to bring in Hillary Klein uh, with Vaughn's Grocery. But um, Hillary, you have a really interesting background. Uh, you were not always in wine. You uh, started out in Hollywood. Well, I mean, you didn't start out at Hollywood, but you were in Hollywood. I was. I yeah. was. I did. Uh, I did, did, did do some acting in my day and mm-hmm. uh, some modeling at some point. But um, which was a lot of fun. Uh, and then moving up here uh, from LA to the Central you Coast. Know you are. So where are you? Central Coast of California. Okay. So basically right down the way from Tastry. And um, uh, so uh, if you remember the Bugs Bunny cartoon where he was always on his way to Pismo Beach. Yes. You live a mile south of there. That sounds so, good. <laughs> yeah. So um, coming here, moving here uh, about, 18 years ago, um, I, I think I was telling you earlier, I really didn't know very much about wine. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't really, I wasn't in the scene. It was pretty foreign to me. The idea of um, spending more than $5 on a bottle was kind of crazy um, in one end out the other. It was not a big thing. Um, but moving here um, and starting to meet winemakers and vineyard managers, um, I really began to learn that it's, it's a craft and an art. Um, from seed to, to glass, it's it's the hand, the number of hands that it goes through, the number of um, processes, amazing people that have to be involved to create this incredible product. Plus, you know the the terroir, the the, the sun, the rain, the earth. Mm-hmm. Um, it just is so much of a craft that um, I was blown away. So how did you take this newfound uh, excitement and turn um, a passion into a profession? Well, it was kind of crazy. I ended up um, first meeting some restaurateurs who um, I started learning um, more about wine pairings and developed, um, started developing uh, wine lists for these restaurateurs, um, pairing lists. 
and then um, to take me to um, the development of a wine bar um, and then uh, creating a blog and selling wine and then um, as on you know um, direct to direct sales to the store uh, stores and re restaurants and then um, getting into uh, becoming the wine ambassador for uh, Greece to the United States mm. and then um, from there, I ended up working at a winery, and now I'm at Mons as the uh, psalm and wine and liquor steward there, which has been so rewarding and so exciting. It's been just an amazing opportunity. So for people who don't know what that means for a, a grocery store, are you involved in the buying? Are you involved in the selection? How, 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 what is your role there, and how do you interact with the wines? So I'm the person, I'm literally the sommelier in the store. Vons has um, a specific program um, with Albertson Safeway Vons. Um, that's the more, um, the stores that have more liquor and more wine selection mm -hmm. um, bring in the stewards. And we're actually there acting as the sommelier saying, oh, you're coming, you're coming here. You don't know what kind of wine you want. Um, well, what are you doing for dinner? Oh, let's pair it with this. Or um, you're looking for, you don't know whether you like red or white, or you're coming in, you're asking for a red wine, but you don't know if you want a Pinot Noir or a Cabernet, mm -hmm. um, or you don't know the difference, which I get a lot of that. Um, and so I help people determine, I'm like, do you want something lighter? Do you want something more bold? Do you, you know, and kind of walking them through the concept of what it, what kinds of wines that they actually will resonate with. So having something like pastry is really, really helpful for me on that because it gives me an opportunity to um, even further qualify our customers. So do you use pastry? Which side are you using pastry? Are you using it with your consumer to be like, here, answer the quiz, like Katarina explained in the beginning, or you're using it to buy wine? So I do have a, um, a voice in um, some of the things that we bring into the store, mm -hmm. um, but because it is a corporate environment, it does have to go through the level. So for me, with Tastry, it's more on the sales floor, mm -hmm. um, being able to use the product, um, the, the app, and um, especially when I have somebody who really has no idea what they like, mm -hmm. or if they're going to something and they really just they want a really good bottle of wine, but they don't know what's going to resonate with, with the people they're with. So using that app and helping them develop um, some ideas of what they're gonna enjoy uh, is really, really helpful. And how do you use it with, with the consumer? Do you, do you have like the app and you just walk through it with them or you tell them just to do it and come back to you? How, can you walk me through it? Sure, sure. It's kind of it's kind of both, actually. Um, so, you know, you get the consumers and you get your consumers in the store who want to get in and get out. Mm -hmm. um, and then you have those who are just so thrilled to have somebody they can talk to and who has some knowledge in the, in the wine and spirits department. So um, those that have a little more time, I will sit there and I'll go, hey, if you have a few minutes, let's go through this app and let's see what we can come up with for you. Right. Um, which is a lot of fun because they do have several of the wines that I carry in my store. So when it comes up and, oh, well, you've got that, you like this. So let's get you that right here. And um, it also helps me, you know, um, 
take people to the next level with wines. Mm -hmm. So for example, you get people who want that five to $10 bottle, but if you say, Hey, listen, um, if you go just a little bit more, you know, if you're willing to pay $5 more, you're going to have such a major different experience. You're going to really see the difference between a $10 bottle of wine and a $15 bottle of wine or a $15 bottle of wine, $20 bottle of wine, um, which is really exciting for people because that's something that they don't, they don't connect with usually. Well, no, um, I think it's a really good point. I think being able to show people why there's more value on the more expensive bottle of wine, what you're getting, the value. If people are money focused when they're buying the wine right. and they're like, I don't want to spend more than 20. And you're like, yeah, but you like this. And this is a $30 bottle of wine. And this is why it's worth the expense, right? So you right. can sort of really explain more. as Right. Fact. Yes. And we can, and we can get people more excited about it because they're like, this is something that you've got a 97% chance of liking and um, versus, oh, this one says you're only going to like it about 86% of the time. So let's go with the 97% because you're definitely going to enjoy that. And that's something that really gets people excited because the thing about going into a wine store or into a grocery store or, or anything like that, if you don't know wine, you're just staring at a bunch of bottles and most people will literally buy the label, not the, pro not the product. Um, they're like, uh, that label looks good. Let's, let's go with that one. Mm -hmm. um, so, and that may just be a pretty label, but there might not be any, any quality inside the bottle. So um, having something like the app from Tastry and, and somebody like me in the store to say, yeah, that's a really pretty label, but the wine in there is just okay. Right. If you want a great wine, Go with this one. This one is a great wine. The label's not as pretty, but you're going to definitely like it. Well, so that makes a huge also difference. another opportunity there, and you can correct mm. me if I'm wrong because I'm not on the floor like you are, but I think there's a lot of people who also like buy a wine, right? Like they're like, this is the wine I know. I buy this wine. Right. But it's and a it, real opportunity to engage in a conversation and be like, well, if you like this, you may also, this may be like your next, now take a step up, go try something else. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely, 100%. So what it allows me to do is several things, actually. It allows me to take somebody who's only ever had Merlot, for example, and introduce them to like a, a cab or a, a Tempranillo or, you know, something that they're, that's so far out of their realm of understanding and then saying, but you're going to like this. Right. right. I love you that. may never have had this. You don't know what it is, but trust me, this is something you're going to very much enjoy. And then having them trust you enough to buy the product and then come back and say, oh my God, I'd never heard of this, this grape or this wine. And I loved it. Right. Um, what's next? <laughs> you know? Um, and, and that's one of the great things is taking people out of their comfort zone. And, and that's my job. My job as a Psalm is to say, you know what, you, you get this wine, let's take you to a different wine and let's see what you come up with that. So it takes me from the different brands. It takes me to different grapes. It takes me to different price points and really helps me engage my consumer um, in a really positive experience with, with, with wine so that they don't just think, they don't just go in there and look like a deer in the headlights when you're staring at just a bunch of bottles. And all you know is you like a red wine. I mean, I literally have people go, I want a red wine. Okay. There's a whole wall of red 
wine. What red wine do you want? <laughs> you know. All right. Well, on that note, I'm going to bring everybody back in uh, because we all want red wine. I mean, here in DC, I want red wine like 24 seven. <laughs> it's rainy and cold. And it's the only thing that makes me feel better. That and a big bowl of pasta. I'd like I love that idea. Um, okay, so Katarina, let's uh, bring you back in. So let me ask you a question. When you launched Tastry, how did you get in front of like Alex? How were you able to say to him, hey, this is what I'm doing and sort of speak his language? Oh, oh boy. Um, that, that took some time. I mean, uh, I, you know, before we uh, went to market with a product, um, I talked to a lot of uh, very respected winemakers in the space. And, um, you know, I, I should look back as to how I actually got those meetings. I may have showed up at some wineries. Um, I sent some cold emails. And uh, the first thing we did was just tell them about what we did, show them our ideas and get their, uh, I asked for their uh, constructive and unconstructive criticism. And after doing that, you know, um, dozens and dozens of times, we started to formulate an idea as to how this should work. You know, we have this core technology, but there's a million things we can do with it. How do we actually make it useful and applicable? So I would say the first way I approached people was just by asking for their advice. Um, and then we spent, you know, the better part of two years building exactly what those people said that they wanted. Mm -hmm. And so Alex, when it came time for you to work in this uh, with Katarina and, and, and employ this, did you just get it right away? And you're like, I totally see what's happening here. And uh, I can't wait to work with it. And then did you have criticism? Like, was there feedback? Were you like, no, 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 I need this. How did you work together? Yeah, I mean, uh, to me, it came very naturally because uh, we tried before we launched a wine to actually have about 20 cons consumers in our like tasting wherever and we say okay you're like a buttery chardonnay and then i i did a diagram with mousefield run statistics and already did sort of all of that the only challenge is like it was very very uh, long and tenuous process right because i was doing everything on excel by myself no AI, no prediction, and I had to pick a wine that I think was successful in the market that represents that better Yoki Chardonnay. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, when Katarina did uh, show me the thing um, to be in complete transparency, I was like, well, yeah, I completely get it. That's how we, it's, if I had the time or any time in my life to do something else, I would have certainly could develop something similar, but she put the time on the effort, which is always you undervalue how much, how much time it would take to do something. Right. And I'm sure from the first like well, idea of Katerina in the in the lab in in uh, in San Luis Obispo at Calpoli, from there she perhaps misjudged how much work it would take to get there, but uh, she had the idea. Right. Uh, so <laughs> I, I'm comp I, I can understand that. So to me it was very natural, and that's certainly because I did you know uh, my consulting job based with a French company that was already very uh, R&D research and development focus. And mm -hmm. we had a lot of tasting and trying to get those descriptors, right? You're like uh, back to Hillary, but you say, hey, what kind of mosphere do you like in your wine? You right. know, is it sweet, is it round, is it hot? Is, like you say that to a consumer, mosphere, and they're like, 
what do you mean? I don't know what that means, right. I mean, and you're like, on me, it's all I'm talking about and the consumer is not there. So you really have to adapt that. And the same with, uh, you know, Katerina mentioned like a weird chemical name for cherry flavors, right? So you've got to find uh, all the parameters that describe what is mass for you. Is it the tannins? Is it the astringency, the bitterness, the volume? And there's so much definition on descriptors to start with. Um, so when Katerina arrived on Show Me The Project, I was like, yeah, um, I completely understand and I give my feedback on, you know, there is two types of clients. There's the winemaker or the consumers or, or perhaps even more clients for test three solution. So the idea is like my feedback more, who are you targeting? What what are you, you know, providing? What is the service? And perhaps how to more like present it. The technology is there, but is it like, you know, which angles are you going to present and what, what are the parameters that are pertinent? What is valuable for a winemaker to make a decision, but what is valuable for Hillary to guide our consumers? That's, right. I think, that was my feedback more and where we work with Testry. Uh, to me, I can digest any type of data, but I don't necessarily uh, think I'm a, a classic winemaker necessarily either. <laughs> no, a, I mean, trust me, I talk to a lot of winemakers. And, uh, you know, the goal is always to make great wine, don't get me wrong, but I, there are very few people that are as data driven as you are, which I, I, I do think it's going to evolve. I think we're going to see a lot of change and it, it actually brings me to my next question. What about climate change and what about like in California, the fires, like how is that changing um, how both Hillary and Alex, both you guys are doing what you're doing and then Katarina, how how tastry evolves because climate change is is an issue especially for the terroir of the wine industry rain i mean all the effects yeah Larry, do you want to start well the one thing that i think is um really telling with regard to um climate change is the fact that wine regions are now moving into different areas that they weren't in before you know france has always been known for their you know champagne has always been known for their their champagne right but now right. we're looking at getting uh, and nobody ever thought that you know england was going to be a place where you can get uh uh you know grapes growing and wines and stuff and now they're producing sparklings that are coming out of of, of britain so um that's a real telltale sign i mean that's really an obvious um thing to, to, to be able to, to, to say, yes, there is something happening. Um, you know, the fires as well, it's a big deal. You know, we're watching wineries burn down now in in, um, in Napa and Sonoma area. And, and then of course, well, how does that, even if you're losing that winery or there's an issue with the grapes in that winery, what about the winery down the street after the wind blew all the smoke to, the, to that winery and how did that affect the grapes? And so, um, it's it's definitely a, a major factor in in the industry right now. I can only say it from sales point of view, right. um, but not so much. You know, Alex would be more inclined to be able to tell you more about how it affects in the vineyard. So, um, how about for you uh, as okay. the mad scientist and winemaker at Atlas? How how do you handle everything that's happening? Uh, I mean, it's it's the biggest challenge. I mean the you're taking climate change in general, like from droughts so or the lack of use of water. Um, or we have reservoirs. So if you if you prepare, you you can mitigate that. The the biggest 
problem in wine quality is by far the smoke, uh, by far. I mean, uh, if you talk about any big climate change, you know, we can control water in certain ways still, and we can use water. It's not like in France where, you know, you cannot use irrigation. We can use irrigation here. So right. we can, you know, wine is made in Arizona. I mean, it's like, <laughs> it's yeah. the No, every, um, actually every state in the United States makes wine. wine. You can yeah. make wine in every state and there is, it's fascinating to me, but, um, you know, there's wine from every region. Yeah, so smoke is is the challenge because smoke alterates, like, you know, I talk about the goal, the final goal. So smoke puts a big wrench into that goal because it, it is uh, unpleasant flavors at, at best. <laughs> and if your wine is damaged by smoke, then a lab like test tree becomes not only a GPS or a guiding to your process, it becomes essential to taste and know where you're at. Smoke, uh, taint wine does not get better. Uh, mm -hmm. It is absolutely uh, a stain on a white shirt and it will not go away. And so you really have to use all data and science you could in order to uh, salvage the wine if possible. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think Tastry actually made um, uh, quite a bit of a of a booster from uh, the few past year where we got very damaged in terms of introducing to people that new technology and get a better understanding of what they were doing. Even though smoke is not necessarily at all, you know, the only thing that this three can do, but it's definitely, uh, that's our biggest challenge in the wineries from grapes being damaged by smoke. There is no way to remove it safely. So it's all about analyzing in which trouble you are in and try to blend it best you can. So Katerina, how do you assist in that? How does Tastry work with somebody like Alex with that? Yeah, um, so we, you know, we have a state-of-the-art TTB certified lab, and when the fires hit California very hard, we decided to, you know, take our other projects, our other efforts, and just put them on the sidelines and just repurpose the lab to uh, test for smoke taint. Um, there were only, you know, a couple labs in the country that were able to do it, that, and people were panicking, trying to ship it for out for analysis in Europe. You know, the, the top labs in the country who did this test had a 43 day backlog. So, so we just started testing for smoke taint. And um, I think we, we helped over 200 um, wineries and everyone was panicking, right? They were about to lose contracts and millions of dollars and they didn't know if they were supposed to pick or not. So, so we just kind of stepped in and, and helped out where we could. Um, and that did bring us a lot of uh, goodwill, and I'm glad we were able to help out. Well, that's uh, you were right place, right time on that one. Okay, I, I want to thank you all for joining me. But before we wrap up, because the show goes fast, um, I'd like to get a prediction from each of you of what the wine industry is going to look like like a year from now. Uh, Hillary, let's start with you. What are you, what are you hoping to see in the stores? What are you looking forward to? What do you, what do you see as a prediction of the wine industry? I think, um, you know, the more sustainable, organic, biodynamic aspect is, um, you know, the natural wines are really uh, hitting hard now. Mm -hmm. um, people are very much coming into the store and saying, I want something natural, I want organic. Um, so, I think that the more that we can continue to bring that in, kind of going back to the 
the beginning, kind of go back to basics and, and create wine um, in a more uh, sustainable way is, is a really big deal. And I think that's going to be helpful. I think um, there's now, you know, with something like what, what Tastry is doing, it gives winemakers an opportunity to, you know, try new things, um, new techniques, mm -hmm. and uh, develop things in, in that they haven't had the time or the ability to do in the past. So I think we're going to see a lot more of that coming around. Um, and um, for me, it's really about inclusivity and more people getting into the industry um, as far as learning how wine is made and getting more appreciation for wine, introducing people who are novices to wine and, and you know, showing, showing people that wine is really accessible. It's not that snooty kind of, you know, $100 only kind of bottles of wine that you're going to be able to get. You can actually get some really great wines, you know, under 30 bucks. Right. And, and that's what I'm here for. I'm here to kind of not only help the connoisseur, but really help teach and develop new wine, wine tasters and drinkers in the industry. And I think that's something that's going to happen a lot more now. That's um, great. More people. Great. Alex, what about you? Coming from uh, the winemaker side, what what are you hoping for or, you know, what do you see for the future of the wine industry, especially for the next year or even the next five years? Sure. Um, I mean, my predictions, like uh, as Ari mentioned, uh, I think uh, education, um, transparency on where all, all your wine is made, you know, not your wine biodynamic and all of that. Those are certifications. But the bottom line is educating the consumers or all your wine is made. If you go to a fast food, you know you're going to a fast food. You're not surprised, right? But if you go for a farm to table place, you need to know. So the wine industry is all like, you know, needs to be more clear on what what the wine is made on on where it's from. And so transparency is is I think still a, a prediction where people want to learn more, and we need as as winery to give more information to our consumers. Mm -hmm. In terms of flavor profile and what the, the consumers in America would like, um, by traveling almost all the states and selling my wine, uh, I think bigger is better is, is, still, <laughs> is still there. Uh, you know, people like bold flavors. Uh, when they spend over $15 on a bottle of wine, they, they want something that tastes like something. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, I think to me, we're still going to go towards that, um, those bold flavors and, uh, and you know, as long as the wine is qualitative and balanced, it's gonna be awesome. And we're gonna have people increasing their buying power by a couple of dollars every year. And Hillary is doing a job to introduce new product. Taste three is matching better products. So it's it's all I think we are in the infancy of the wine business in the US. I think the America can drink better wine and more wine like tenfold. <laughs> so, I, I mean I totally agree with you. And I'm going to, just before I go to Katerina, I am going to say that, you know, the, the buzzwords like natural wine, organic wine, biodynamic wines, I, I do, my plea to the wine industry is to better define what those things mean. Because natural wines are like, they don't have a good rep. No. You know I mean? Because no. of like, the funky wines, you know, I, I always sort of compare it to like the beer geeks, you know, the beer geeks, like the sour beers and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, so I feel like some of the terminology needs to be refreshed as a way to re-engage people with 
what that means for the wine. Do you know what I mean? I agree a hundred percent. I mean, a lot of people do, you know, they'll come in and say, I want an organic wine. I'm like, well, this wine is green. I mean, the, the, the winery is green or um, this wine is sustainable or biodynamic. And they're like, no, I need organic. And right, it's like, well, yeah, yeah right. you don't know the difference. So it exactly. comes, so yeah, definitely something that the wine industry could do better is define the difference between conventional winemaking and you know, sustainable winemaking and really explaining what it means to, to be like SIP certified or which is sustainable. Um, I just think it needs to be easier. And since I have the experts here, I'm, I'm asking for it. Uh, yeah, Katrina, yeah. I want to end up with you, please. So your predictions, given what you're doing for the industry. Yeah, I, I have a, a moonshot of a prediction, but I, I would expect to see, you know, three years from now, an explosion of more interesting and innovative blends, simply mm-hmm. because, you know, the winemakers do want to make those, those things, but you kind of have to play it safe if you have a product out there that's already doing well. But if you have the confidence that there's a market for it, you might be more inclined to try something interesting. I think that's great. All right. What I would love from each of you, please, as we wrap up here, um, I would love for each of you just to say where we can find you, whether it's an, uh, a website or uh, Instagram handle. That would be great. Hillary, let's start with you. Where can we find you? You can find me at She Drinks, He Eats on Facebook or uh, Instagram or, um, or Twitter. So we're She Drinks, He Eats is it was our blog. Um, and that's kind of my handle on most of those things. That's yes. not my, you know, that's my or on the floor at Vons and Grover Beach. <laughs> okay, and Alex, where can we find you, please? Cannot be found. <laughs> kidding. Uh, AtlasWineCo.com. Atla, uh, Atlas I found you, so I think you can be found. Uh, AtlasWineCo.com. There is all our winemaking, uh, all our wines. So Omen and Orobello are two uh, main brands, but AtlasWineCo has everything from learning how we make our wine all the way from the vineyards all the way to the um, to the bar. So everything there at lastwineco.com. Excellent. Okay. And Katarina, where can we find you and uh, get more involved with Tastry? Yeah, you can uh, reach me through tastry.com. It's just T-A-S-T-R-Y. Excellent. Thank you all. I want to thank you so much for joining me today. There was a little science for you and a little wine as well. Special thanks to my guest, Katarina Axelson of Tastry, Hilary Klein of Vons Grocery, and Alex Remy of uh, Atlas Wine Co. Um, and that was a lot of good information. So if you have questions about wine, obviously you should ask the experts. Always ask somebody in your wine shop, the SOM at your restaurant. Don't be intimidated. There is no reason not to drink what you like, and there's no reason also so not to spend a little bit more if you can. Um, now, there are lots of fab spots to hit uh, in the DC metro area. In fact, I just checked out uh, Nick Stefanelli's new Villa Timo, which is a gorgeous space. It's a Greek restaurant, lots of Greek wines, a lot that you will not know because I did not know. So definitely ask for help on that. Uh, and are you ready for some football or Valentine's Day? I got you covered. So check out the list, are you on it.com. We have a gift guide for Valentine's Day. I have 
every platter and chicken wing that you could possibly want for your table for the big game day. And of course, every restaurant that is serving Valentine's Day dinners or packing them up to go is all on the list. Are you on it.com? So your sweethearts uh, will be taken care of as well. So don't forget to tune in every Sunday to Foodie and the Beast on 1500 at 11. And follow me at N-Y-C-C-I-N-E-L-L-I-S on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. I thank you so much for joining me today on Industry Night on Real Fun DC. One last reminder, in DC, you need to wear a mask. You also need your vaccination card. Just be kind out there. There's no reason to cause a fuss. Go out, have a good time, follow the rules, and be safe. And of course, have a delicious week. Industry Night with Nikki Nellis. Thanks for listening to Real Fun DC.